Welcome back, and thank you for joining me again this week for another episode of The Devil Came Knocking. This week I have an episode I know many of you have been waiting for, as I have Karen Howe's life story. Along with that, I will be releasing an interview with Karen's mother, Phyllis, that I conducted several weeks ago. And for those who have not seen it yet, I also released Karen's disciplinary report from prison this week on the podcast's page on Facebook. Just like Crystal and Dean's, Karen is one page with no serious incidents, and it has been almost 15 years since she has had any issues at all. I encourage you to go look at all six and just compare for yourself. Let's not waste any more time. What you're about to hear is Karen's life story. She wrote this herself, so it is truly her story. I was 17 years old, April the 6th of 1997, when the horrendous crimes took place. I haven't had too many life experiences per se before then. However, I will give you a brief description of my childhood and life as I understand it back then before prison. I was born in Ohio, but due to work-related issues, my family moved to Kentucky when I was still little. As an adolescent, I was a quiet and shy girl. My parents back then didn't mesh very well, even though they loved each other. My dad was an alcoholic at one point and could be very temperamental. The atmosphere in our home could get bad at times with arguing. In retrospect, I know my dad endured and lived through eras in his life when he was in the military that continued to live on inside of him that no one could understand. Although I love my dad to death, it was difficult sometimes as a child and a little scary to watch his drunken behavior. I stayed to myself a lot and played outside. When I was nine years old, my parents decided to call it quits and got a divorce. The continuous struggle of my dad's drinking at that time got the best of the marriage. For most kids, watching their parents divorce can be a traumatic experience. But I knew at that time it was for the best. When the divorce was final, I moved with my mom. As the years went by though, my dad quit drinking. I could not have ever asked for a better dad than he was to me. Back then in the midst of other things going on sometimes, things were also happening to me that no one knew nothing about. When I was about six years old, up until the time I was around 12 years old, when the opportunity presented itself, I was being sexually abused by two of my family members, trusted family members. First it began with my older cousin and then my uncle. My uncle told me if I ever told my parents, they wouldn't believe me and they would end up very angry with me. As a child, I believed him and so I kept it all a secret. It was a secret that tore down my self-esteem, a secret that made me leery of other people, a secret that made me hate the way I feel in my own skin sometimes. My mom brought me up in church. I was actually involved in youth groups growing up. I went to church concerts. I went to outings, played softball with some of the other members. I went to church camp. I even got baptized not too long before my arrest. 
The remaining ounce of innocence I had left inside me found escape from that part of myself that was slowly, downwardly spiraling inside. These were the times I felt like an actual kid, and not to mention just normal. Those were all the moments that kept my focus off any other turmoil in life. My mother, being a single parent, did the best she could. I allowed my past and what happened when I was a child to overshadow much of my teenage years instead of asking my mom or anyone else for that matter for help for my depression. The majority of the influence I received was from me choosing and allowing peer pressure and the rebellion in my heart to be the compass by which I made my decisions. I started smoking pot in my early teenage years and eventually ventured into using harder drugs, especially hallucinant drugs. I stopped dressing like most girls in school and didn't want to wear anything too fitting. I wanted my clothes baggy. I was a mental and emotional mess. That feels like an understatement. I would skip school, didn't do homework. I didn't care about myself. I was selfish and never thought for one moment how my actions might be affecting those who cared about me. I got stuck in an addiction, so to speak, and trapped in a dysfunctional cycle that I thought was normal. Trying to escape the reality I created for myself and run from my own pain, I began cutting on myself. I've burnt myself. I tried to commit suicide. To sum it up, I was a kid with no coping skills, and depression ultimately had its stronghold. Some people think that I was part of some cult. I don't even think anything that even existed in the small town where I lived. During my teenage years, there were TV shows that were really popular at the time. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, Charmed, a movie called The Craft came out in the 90s. Those are some of the shows I can think of off the top of my head. I found fantasy intriguing. Watching things in the nature sparked my curiosity of wanting to see what a Ouija board was all about. So ever so often, me and a couple of friends would get together and play around with it. It was entertaining at the time. It is what I would see in some of these things I would watch on TV and wanted to see for myself. To my knowledge, Joseph Reisner's attorney stated in court he played with the Ouija board when he was a kid. I guess the point I'm trying to make is playing a game by Parker Brothers doesn't make someone a terrible person, nor evil, or even part of some cult. I never personally owned one, nor was it something I'd do every day. My mom, whom is a Christian lady, raised me, and I grew up knowing these type of things were forbidden. So honestly, it intrigued me even more. I met Natasha Cornette when I first started high school. We had a mutual friend and that is how I came to know who she was. She looked different from the average kids around and so I was automatically drawn to different. As I got to know her, I thought she was cool and we became friends. My mom told me to stay away from her because of her reputation and forbid me to hang out with her. Even though a mother has a child's best interests at heart, 
it can go in one ear and out the other. I started lying to my mom and pretended I was staying the night at another friend's house. Natasha and I would party and do stupid stuff. Now that I'm a grown woman, I look back and think, what was I thinking? By far, we were not good for each other to hang out with. It was not a healthy friendship. She was different and I felt otherwise at the time. Up until that weekend we ran away, I hadn't hung out with her in quite a while. I had quit school at the age of 15 years old. I did, however, work and studied to get my GED every day. I got a babysitting job for about eight hours a day. I was trying my best to save up for a car. I don't really remember how Joseph Reisner and I ended up dating towards the end. I was, however, having to secretly meet him, and the only place I could see him was over at Natasha's on the weekend. The weekend of April the 4th, 1997, the six of us just so happened to be at Natasha's. We were no cult. Dean Mullins was staying at Natasha's as her boyfriend. Crystal was there because of a personal reason of no, having nowhere else to go. I was there to secretly meet up with my boyfriend, Joseph Reisner. Jason Bryant was there because he was Natasha's friend. We had never met him before. We had no idea that he was going to end up being a cold-blooded killer. I would have never ran away from home if I had known things would end up spiraling out of control the way they did, and especially children being shot, as I would have never left home. When we left and got into Tennessee, Jason Bryant tried to hotwire a couple of vehicles. At the rest area, there was talk between Joseph and Jason of robbing the family for their van. I thought it was going to be just talk because when we were sitting at the picnic table chatting, they didn't have weapons on them. The guns were still in the car. I didn't think anything of it really when Joseph got up and said he was going to get his sweater from the car because it was chilly. I remember it being windy, so I thought nothing of it. When he came back, he placed the gun on the table that he took from under his sweater. He said, I hate to do this, but I need your van. It was words to that nature. Joseph did tell them they would not be hurt. I can't really put into words how I felt in that moment other than feeling stuck in that situation. I, however, got up from that picnic table and made that decision to get into the van with them. That decision will ever haunt my heart. Things got so out of hand from there. There was no pleading with Jason of letting them go. He got manic. I truly think him smoking pot throughout the morning made him even more paranoid. Jason kept insisting to Vidar that they would tell on him, and Vidar kept saying they wouldn't. I got scared and froze up. I beat myself up for so long because of that. I prayed throughout the years for the victims to forgive me because of that. After it happened, I was a little distorted and can't remember some things. I do, J I do remember that Jason made threats to Natasha about harming Crystal and Dean. I do know while in Mexico, he was reloading the gun right behind me. I don't know who that bullet was going to be for. He wasn't just going to reload the gun for no reason. He was a ticking time bomb. 
I realize that society will always believe what they want to, and that is a losing battle. I know that people will continue to slam me and say that I'm manipulative, or I've said this in the past, or I've done that and even make up stories about me. I can never express of how sorry I am or my remorse or regret I live with and feel for the poor choices, my decisions that I made in the past. I own that. Going along with them in a robbery that ended up in a murder will always haunt my mind and soul. Coming in at 17 years old and I've grown up a lot in here. I'm now 42. I know that a lifetime of me participating in classes and doing certain works would never compensate for my past actions. I would never insinuate it to be so, nor anywhere never the assumption to be remotely true. I know that I cannot undo my past, so every day I try my best not to live defined by it. I hope that someday I will be worthy of forgiveness and mercy to every heart that I've helped cause pain. The family of the victims, friends of the family, some of my family, and everyone that was ever affected from this case. Karen Howe. There are many issues that bother me revolving around Karen's case that we will cover more next week. However, it is important to keep in mind that Karen was a 17-year-old girl with a 78 IQ. She suffered obvious mental health issues, most likely a result of years of abuse and trauma. She at the time engaged in acts of self-harm, and all of this is well documented. Even the state of Tennessee agrees, as all of this is well documented in the court papers. Both Karen and Natasha's arms look like cutting boards, both having visible scars going up the length of both arms. The juvenile system in Greene County found her mentally competent to stand trial as an adult, though. Mind you, they were giving her Xanax to the point that she once passed out headfirst into the glass, separating her from her family during a visit. All of this can be found reading through the transcripts at the courthouse. Anyways, that's enough ranting. We will discuss all of this in detail next week. Here is my interview with Phyllis, Karen's mother. Okay, everyone, I have Phyllis on the phone, Karen's mother. Um, she has prepared a statement for you guys that she's going to read about Karen now. Uh, Phyllis, you go ahead and take over. Good. 
she attended church and was in youth groups till she was 15 years of age. And she was also baptized at 14 years old. Um, the divorce that her dad and I it left her really sad. She went through some depression and it was just sad, you know, for her that time. But as time went on, she, she went back to enjoying her life and her friends. And at, um, at her ninth grade, she met up with Natasha Wallen uh, at the school she attended and she began to change. You know, I forbidden her to talk to Natasha and told Tasha to stay away from my daughter. And of course that didn't happen. Karen moved in with her dad. Uh, I was working at the time and I didn't want her to have to do that, but she was kicking me awake all night talking on the phone and she had already quit school. And she was talking all night and uh, sleeping all day. And I just asked her to make a decision to get a job or move in with her dad because I had to work and she chose to move in with her dad. But I did not know she was continuing to talk to Tasha. Karen didn't do a lot of stuff that's out there that they've said. They've told a lot of lies. She had never had any part of the death of the Lilliets. And it was a terrible time for me. So when all that was occurring, I was devastated. I even lost strength in my legs and could hardly walk. I also fainted at the bad news that came on TV about all this. I had some family with me at the time. They were, at the time they were looking for them. It was the worst nightmare a parent could ever have. And I knew nothing except she was missing. I didn't know all this was going on. I was just, I went to the police station to file a missing parent, a, a missing person, excuse me. Um, Natasha Wallen, her mom called me and said, Karen and all of them were gone and that I would never see her again. That's why I went and filed a missing person. Um, and the, one of the police officers says, uh, this is going to go national. And I didn't know what in the world he was talking about. But anyway, of course, I found out later. You know, I was re uh, relieved that my daughter, when they found my daughter, that she was okay and not harmed. Uh, I was told that actually the uh, public offender in Arizona called me and she told me Karen was in shock, that she did not want to eat, that they thought they might have to feed her through tubes. You know, that's, that don't sound like someone that would do such a terrible thing, you know, as I said, you know, I love my daughter and I'm always going to be here for, her. you know, as a Christian, I would never have got through all this without God. He helped me through all this stuff. Um, it was just a terrible time for me and my family. Karen is wonderful now. She, she's a daughter I've always wanted and She's a mature woman, and she never complains about anything. I said, there's people out here that has, has everything going for them, and they complain all the time. 
My daughter never complains, and she's succeeded in a lot of things in prison since she's been there. And I think she's ready to come out. And she made a terrible decision, and she knows that, by leaving home that day. And, you know, 25 years has passed, and um, she can't get those years back. Um, you know, everybody makes bad decisions, so that cost her 25 years of her life, her bad decision. But I believe that one day she'll be home again, and I look forward to that. And I keep believing in that. And, you know, it's something no parent would ever want to go through. But she would never, ever harm no one. She was just not like that at all. And I hope that everyone would know that, that they can see that. So that's about all I have to say. And thank you for listening. Bye. That concludes this week's episode of The Devil Came Knocking. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, you will hear an interview I conducted with Karen, and I will be having Doug Cavanaugh back on to discuss some of the issues revolving around Karen's case, as well as discuss what Doug was told by Karen's dad before he passed away. While I will agree with those that argue Karen has more culpability than Crystal and Dean, I would argue it's only slightly. I find Karen to be more to be both remorseful through her words and actions, but she is not a killer. It's time we demand they throw out these plea deals and give the six the fair individual trials they deserved in 1997.